Sunrise, sunset, swiftly fly the years. Those lines from the poignant song bring a memory of two friends who, like the father and the mother, portrayed in Fiddler on the Roof, did not remember getting older. The man was about 63 and the woman 55. Both were healthy, happy, and employed in work they enjoyed. One day the man was told that he must take an immediate retirement. On the Monday morning the retirement took effect. The husband watched his wife prepare to leave for work. He realized that he would be left home alone with nothing to do. He had no occupation, no hobbies, no special interests, and no plans for the future. As he followed his wife to the door that morning, he exclaimed in anguish, what's going to happen to me? What can I do? What indeed was there for this man to do, who one day was at the peak of his career and the next day was classified among the elderly unemployed? He was left to find a new life for himself or to vegetate and die. And sadly, I add, within a brief period of time, he did die. Now there are those who would say that this crisis in the lives of my friends was inevitable. This, of course, is true. Aging is a natural process. President Eldon Tanner has counseled, people of all ages must realize that one day they could be old, a time for which we should prepare. <clears throat> Many different circumstances and factors affect the quality of a person's life in the later years. But there is a corollary between preparing for old age and enjoying it when it comes. We are told in the Doctrine and Covenants, if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. May I suggest a few preparations? First, we can begin now to develop good attitudes toward the later years. We can learn to respect the wisdom, experience, and value of older people. We can strengthen our family ties and appreciate the assets of many generations in a family, the children, youth, adults, including the elderly. With careful planning, a family can have loving, rewarding experiences in caring for its elderly members. There is no better way to teach, a ch to teach children respect for the elderly and the need for everyone to prepare for that time of life than by helping to care for their older relatives. Second, we can practice the principles of financial preparedness by living within our means and saving for the time when our earnings cease. Third, we can make service to others a lifetime habit. The older years may bring even more time for service, as the hours once devoted to earning a livelihood or rearing a family can be used to enrich the lives of others through church and community service. We can also enrich our own lives by learning new skills after our full-time occupation has relaxed its demands. Learning should be a lifetime pursuit. Finally, good health practices pay important dividends in the later years. Our physical health can be enhanced when we keep the word of wisdom. Eat a well-balanced diet every day. Practice good dental hygiene. Control weight. Get adequate sleep and rest. 
maintain a physical fitness program, and adhere to medical procedures which ensure a healthy life. Some who reach retirement age seem to feel, I've done my share, now it's someone else's turn. But withdrawal, according to gerontologists and others who work with the aging, can actually hasten the aging process. <clears throat> Aunt Martha is soon to be 95 years of, years of age. I'd challenge almost anyone to keep up with her. There seems to be no end to what she finds to do. She attends civic meetings, she studies her church lesson assignments, and makes appropriate contributions to the classroom discussions. In a time of need, she is the first one to render compassionate service. I've heard many people say that the bowl of hot soup she prepared for them was just what they needed. Was it the food or the loving concern that was special? Sisters on her visiting teaching district know that she will be there early in the month. She attends two or three sessions each time she goes to the temple. She keeps current her genealogical records. She helps with housework and gardening. But I think her greatest joy is missionary work. She filled a mission in Southern California when she was 75 years of age. And since then, I don't suppose she has let a single opportunity to share the gospel pass her by. She loves and is loved. She is grateful for life, and she lives each moment fully. And priesthood and Relief Society leaders must be aware of the great potential of those like Aunt Martha, who are in their later years and can give useful service. Besides the traditional assignments for the elderly, we suggest substitute grandparenting, teaching in many classes such skills as knitting, crocheting, gardening, bread making, and quilting, or other skills which younger women often need to learn. They might read to the visually handicapped, compile family and ward histories, write letters for those who need such help, teach those who wish to learn to read or write. A wonderful world of service may emerge for those with time and skills to offer. So far, I have been speaking about the independent elderly, but there are many aged people who are dependent. Some are partially bedridden, others are senile, or physically incapacitated. These older people must not be neglected. Some may be adequately cared for in their own homes with the aid of such service as meals brought in to them each day, housekeeping, shopping, outpatient medical services, and a daily telephone check, while other older people need 24-hour care and attention. Often, even though families give this loving care to the elderly, they and the elderly need supportive services from others. Relief Society and priesthood leaders should be particularly aware of the needs of these families and their elderly members. The dependent elderly need the kindness and the attention of loving friends, visiting, and home teachers. A busy mother in a home may need a few hours' respite from the constant care of an older person, just as a younger mother does from the constant care of young children. Relief Society assigned compassionate service could be a natural response to this need. There may be times when the medical and physical needs of the aged can only be met by institutional care. When this is necessary, 
Relief Society and priesthood leaders may assist family members by helping evaluate the appropriateness of the institution. And after a family member enters a health care institution, the family and the church need to continue their supportive interest with regular visits and expressions of love. Visiting teachers and, where appropriate, special nursing home relief society sessions can be a blessing to sisters in such institutions. Church members will be led to a greater understanding of their responsibilities regarding the aged if the stake uses the new BYU film production, The Mailbox, as the focus of a discussion on the needs and the contributions of its elderly members. When the time of old age comes upon us, and it surely will, for swiftly fly the years, as the song says, we need to come to that time with a courage born of faith and of preparation. Underline all we do for ourselves and for our own, we must remember the aged with the compassionate spirit of Christ in whose work we are engaged. May the cry of the psalmist ring in our hearts. Cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning I would like to speak of a division of welfare services of, of which, uh, which is rarely mentioned in this welfare services meeting. And yet through its organization and activities it draws all who participate, the giver and the receiver, so very close to the Savior. We might appropriately call it a haven of love, a very special haven for some very special people, where perhaps for the first time an individual begins to feel worth something after all, where the environment is such as to help one regain self-respect, where lack of training, skills, or aptitude are not considered handicaps, where a person is treated with tender, loving care regardless of mental or physical limitations, where by making a contribution, no matter how modest, a person gains the feeling of being needed, worthwhile, and important, where each workday begins with a morning devotional. This haven for special people is Deseret Industries. Deseret Industries epitomizes the spirit of the Savior's teachings and is one of the most exciting aspects of welfare services. What makes it so exciting is the influence it has in the lives of people who serve there. Let me introduce you to some of these wonderful people. space industry, Eldon Dixon was the victim of an accident that left him with slow movement and poor coordination. 
After getting out of the hospital, he found help waiting to assist in adjusting to his handicap. Roland Lance has cerebral palsy. Roland moved around on his hands and knees until he was 13 years old. Then he decided he just had to learn to walk. His next obstacle was to find something somewhere to do with his life. Dora Gilgan lost her sight many years ago. She made up her mind that life would not be empty and meaningless. Counting every stitch, she developed her skill at crocheting. She now finds great satisfaction in knowing she's able to make her own way. Sadie Avery is in her 70s. Although she is elderly, she isn't ready to accept charity. But where does a woman her age find employment? I'm working at Deseret Industries. That way I'm self-supporting and don't have to depend on the children. I'd like to be independent. I'm going to work till I'm 90. And then I'll retire and take life easy after that. These people, Eldon, Dora, Sadie, and Ron, are people with handicaps whose misfortune could be tragic if it weren't for the work opportunities provided by the Deseret Industries, a function of welfare services of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Most people think of Deseret Industries as a salvaging and reclaiming service, a place to get a good buy on almost any household item, clothing, furniture, appliances, toys, you name it. But that's far from being its primary purpose. The first objective of Deseret Industries is to fulfill the need of people to progress and develop, to help people with their problems, to help the handicapped or disabled members of the church to realize their potential and their worth. The great blessing we have in our home is the oldest of our three boys. He is 31 years of age and was injured at birth. As a result of brain damage, his muscular co coordination and powers of speech have been severely impaired. Mentally, he's just as normal as anyone. He has one of the greatest personalities I've ever seen. Everything is okay with Mike. He's a grand sport, so grateful for everything you do for him, never complains. He has a great sense of right and wrong and is always on the side of the good guys. He had more to do with my joining the church than anything else. I learned a lot about praying by praying for him. About the time our regional desert industry store was to be completed, the bishop made the suggestion that perhaps Mike could find a job there. Neither my wife nor I could bear to think of taking him any place and leaving him alone like that. But after talking to the bishop and the stake president, we decided to give it a try. It has turned out to be one of the greatest things that has ever happened in our lives or Mike's. At first they had him dying shoes with the result that he got more dye on himself than the shoes. So they put him to washing dishes. He must have broken too many, so they changed him to sorting rags. Presently, he is cutting off buttons, which, which he has paid 80 cents an hour. Can you imagine what 80 cents worth of buttons would be? I doubt that a normal person could cut off 80 cents worth of buttons an hour. But the main interest at Deseret Industries is making people feel useful and happy. If you want to give yourself a spiritual treat, just visit Deseret Industries and associate with those who work there and see how much love and concern they have for each other and how happy they are in their work." End quote. An awakening to a sense of personal worth stands at the heart of everything Deseret Industries does. It is exhibited in the theme song adopted by the Mesa Deseret Industries at the dismissal of the morning devotional, All the Workers Sing, let me call you sweetheart. 
As they walk arm in arm to their work stations, you witness a feeling of profound love. Brother Jim Clegg, manager of the Murray Desert Industries, attended a sacrament meeting in his son's ward where the program was provided by some retarded youth. The final number was a solo to be sung by a sweet mongoloid sister. Brother Clegg knew his, this young woman could sing because she participated in the Murray Desert Industries Choir. But little did he know that a 70-year-old, one of the 70-year-old brethren at the Desert Industries had been working closely with her because he recognized some natural vocal ability. As she stood up to perform her number, she noticed Brother Clegg in the audience and cried out, That's my Deseret Industries manager there in the back. She proceeded to tell the congregation that Deseret Industries was the most wonderful place in the whole world. As she sang, I am a child of God, no one in the audience doubted that indeed Deseret Industries is the most wonderful place in the world. In May 1938, the Deseret Industries was established. Its charter was outlined by the First Presidency to permit those who have to share with those who have not by giving of their surplus property, such as clothing, furniture, appliances, and so forth, to Deseret Industries, where the work of renovation would employ the unemployed and to make available those same articles of good quality at affordable cost. Although it would appear that employment is the prime purpose of Deseret Industries, it is only a means to an end, the end being to bless the lives of these people through work. Not only does it bless those who work, but also those who give. Deseret Industries could not function were it not for the generosity of those who give goods and materials which the workers mend and repair. Of course, the next step is obvious. This restored merchandise must be sold to complete the cycle. You may be interested in what has happened in Desert Industries from its beginning 40 years ago. As of March the 1st, there were 1,700 handicapped employees in 22 Desert Industries stores and satellites. Approximately 60% of gross receipts goes directly into handicapped salaries. Presently, we have units in Utah, Idaho, Arizona, California and soon-to-be-opened stores in Oregon, Colorado, and Nevada. My purpose in speaking of Deseret Industries today is twofold. First, to suggest that those of you who have access to Deseret Industries, or will have in the near future, encourage the members of your wards and stakes to become enthusiastically involved in the program by giving to and then patronizing Deseret Industries. And second, to encourage you leaders who do not have Deseret Industries to analyze the circumstances of your wards and stakes to determine whether or not the time is right to organize the Deseret Industries in your area. If you think it is, make contact through proper priesthood channels with the Welfare Services Department here at headquarters. We recognize there will be many areas of the Church where limited membership would make it impractical to introduce the program at the present time. It is not, however, inappropriate to use all of the ingenuity in, in blessing the people with the principles we have discussed, even before it is possible to have the full program. May I close with just one other experience? Let me tell you of one elderly brother who sat in a nursing home just looking at the floor day after day, week after week. Someone who loved him and knew about Deseret Industries arranged for him to come to work. He began by, by the supervisor placing a wide push broom in his hands taking him to the end of a corridor and having him push the broom down the hall to the other end, then turning him around and having him push it back again. This he did time after time. 
In the process of doing, he started to get a small glimmer of interest in something, in anything, and his eyes raised from the floor. He saw the walls and he saw the windows. As this process continued, the development of a feeling that everyone needs was nurtured. It wasn't long until other assignments were given to him, which he did very well. In time, his faith in himself and his feeling of worth had been restored. He became a supervisor of others. May the Lord bless these wonderful special people, and may we be blessed as their leaders, that we, through the work of the Welfare Services Program, may bless their lives, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One day in South America, we had an interesting experience of seeing in a hot jungle area a small brownish-gray animal hanging upside down in a tree. It had rather long front paws and short back legs. Its movements were so slow that it was hard to know whether it was alive or dead. We were told that it was a sloth. I was intrigued because reference to the sloth appears in Scripture. The Lord used it with disdain, referring to those who were slow to act. When the welfare program was begun in the 1930s, it aimed to eliminate the curse of idleness, reestablish self-respect, and help people to help themselves. The basic principles of the Lord's economic system had earlier been revealed to the Prophet Joseph. Nearly everything that has happened since then has been to prepare us for the time when this program would be needed to a far greater extent. In the intervening years, many great principles have been declared. I shall review these briefly. President Grant declared, The Church needs blessings, and the only way we can receive them is by keeping the laws on which these blessings are predicated. The fundamental law pertaining to the welfare of our people is fast offering. The reason we want to stress the paying of fast offering is because we need the blessings that come from paying fast offerings. President Clark counseled, <clears throat> Live within your means. Get out of debt. Keep out of debt. Lay by for a rainy day which has always come and which will come again. Practice and increase your habits of thrift, industry, economy, and frugality. Let every head of every household see to it that he has on hand enough food and clothing and, where possible, fuel also for at least a year ahead. Let every man who has a garden spot garden it. Every man who owns a farm farm it. He continues, Cash is not food, it is not clothing, it is not coal, it is not shelter. And we have got to the place where no matter how much cash we have, we cannot secure those things in the quantities which we may need. All that you can be certain you will have is that which you produce. We must purge our hearts of the love of ease. We must put out of our lives the curse of idleness. God declared that mortal man should earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. That is the law of this world. Continuing, many of us are not yet willing to bring ourselves under control and to quit spending not only all of our savings, but also all we are making, and in addition running into debt on installment buying." End quote. You sisters will be pleased to hear again his counsel. 
Quote, if there is any bishop in this church who thinks he can get along without his Relief Society, he does not yet know his job. And if he is getting along without his Relief Society, he is not doing his job right. May I state parenthetically that the displays in the Relief Society building on ideas for home storage, suggestions on meeting emergencies, etc., should be visited by all who attend the conference. They will be open between the sessions of conference today. President Harold B. Lee said, Priesthood plus womanhood together bring exaltation. Priesthood plus womanhood is necessary in welfare. Without this teamwork, never in the world would we accomplish what we are doing in the welfare program. President Lee also taught, Keep in mind that the church welfare program must begin with you personally and individually. It must begin with every member of the Church. You have to act for yourself and be a participant before the welfare program is active in your household. Moving out from there, then, to quorums, to united teamwork, tremendous results can come. May the Lord help us, he said, to understand these fundamentals and guide us to the destiny, which is to attain a full consecration, wherein we consecrate our lives, all that we have and are, for the upbuilding of the kingdom. Then only can we develop the faith necessary to an exaltation in the celestial kingdom." End quote. President Romney has said, Both history and prophecy, and I may add common sense, bear witness to the fact that no civilization can long endure which follows the course charted by bemused manipulators and now being implemented as government welfare programs all around the world. Babylon shall be destroyed, and great shall be the fall thereof. But, he continues, Do not be discouraged. Zion will not go down with her, because Zion shall be built on the principles of love of God and fellow man and work, earnest labor, as God has directed. As we prepare for the building of Zion, we must not and we shall not abandon the basic principles on which our Church welfare services are founded—love of God and neighbor and labor or work. He continues, Almost from the beginning of my service in Church welfare, I have had the conviction that what we are doing in this welfare program is preliminary to the reestablishment of the law of consecration and stewardship as required under the United Order. If we could always remember the goal toward which we are working, we would never lose our bearings in this great work." End quote. Now, brethren, listen to Alma's landmark counsel for leaders. Quote, and he commanded them, the leaders, that they should teach nothing, save it were the things which he had taught and which had been spoken by the holy prophets. We are under that same obligation. President Tanner said that President Romney was the best informed and greatest authority in the Church today on welfare programs. In the last few years, President Romney has restated and expounded the fundamental principles of the welfare program. The major addresses of the welfare sessions have been reported in the conference edition of the Ensign Magazine for the last five conferences. The preventative aspects of the welfare program can and must be accomplished by you quorum leaders learning, teaching, and implementing these principles. Besides the preventative work, there is the work of rehabilitation. The individual who is in need of sustenance help should be built back in to a self-supporting member of the Church. 
This is the work of the priesthood quorums that Elder Hinckley illustrated so beautifully six months ago. The quorum must help its weakened members. Likewise, on you ironic priesthood quorum leaders, including the bishopric, of course, falls the responsibility to teach welfare principles to over half a million young men and women. Often we hear you say, what is there to do? In addition to the collection of fast offerings by the deacons, some of the finest opportunities lie in the area of welfare services. Brethren, build into your programs the excellent activities suggested in the Aaronic Priesthood Quorum Guidebook and the Activity Book. Here is a sampling of the useful and interesting ways youth can participate in home storage and welfare service activities. Store and preserve foods and water, store firewood and make newspaper logs, prepare an inventory of family possessions, plant a garden, build a compost pile and make an outdoor storage pit, prune fruit trees, make shopping comparisons, learn about a proper diet, cook game meat or fish, clean a house, repair an electrical cord, replace a water faucet, paint the interior and exterior of a house and enjoy a festival of homemaking skills. Each of these ideas has other suggested projects that are both fun and useful. Brothers and sisters, I have briefly reviewed the principles. They are true. You can live them. Now I give a word of caution, even warning. The word sloth or slothfulness appear in Scripture 25 times generally to condemn those who were slow to act. As we watched that sloth hanging in the tree, it reached out ever so slowly to pull off a leaf, then slower still to bring it back and put it in its mouth. As we watched it, we could understand the words impatient, irritated, exasperated. The Savior's reference to the sloth and slothfulness illustrates his displeasure and impatience with the person who is slow to act, who is slothful. Brethren, our generation has been counseled patiently for more than 40 years. It is no longer optional to learn and teach and implement these principles. It is crucial. This work is divine. It will yet save and exalt us. That exaltation will come by living this law. May we in unity rise to this challenge and do it. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our bishops face an increasing call to counsel members with problems that have more to do with emotional needs than with the need for food or clothing or shelter. My message, therefore, is to the subject solving emotional problems in the Lord's own way. Fortunately, the principles of temporal welfare apply to emotional problems as well. When the Church was two years old, the Lord revealed that the idler shall not have place in the Church except he repent and mend his ways. The Welfare Handbook instructs, We must earnestly teach and urge our members to be self-sustaining to the fullest extent of their power. No Latter-day Saint will voluntarily shift from himself the burden of his own support. We have succeeded fairly well in teaching Latter-day Saints that they should take care of their own material needs and then contribute to the welfare of others. If he is unable to sustain himself, 
Then he's to call upon his own family, then upon the church in that order, and not upon the government at all. We have counseled bishops and stake presidents to be very careful to avoid all any abuse of the welfare program. When people are able but unwilling to care for themselves, we are responsible to employ the dictum of the Lord that the idler shall not eat the bread of the laborer. When the first church welfare program was announced, the First Presidency said, Our primary purpose was to set up, insofar as possible, a system under which the curse of idleness would be done away with, the evils of the dole abolished, and independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect be once more established amongst our people. The aim of the Church is to help people to help themselves. Occasionally someone is attracted to the Church because of our welfare program. They see material security. Our answer to them is, yes, join the Church for that reason. We can use all of the help we can get. You will be called upon continually to help and to bless others. It is a self-help system, not a quick handout system. It requires a careful inventory of all personal and family resources, all of which must be called upon before anything is added from the outside. It is not an unkind or an unfeeling bishop who requires a member of the Church to work to the fullest extent he can for what he receives from Church welfare. There should not be the slightest embarrassment for any member to be assisted by the Church provided, that is, that he has contributed all that he can. President Romney has emphasized to care for people on any other basis is to do them more harm than good. The purpose of Church welfare is not to relieve a member from taking care of himself. The principle of self-reliance or independence is fundamental to the happy life. In too many places, in too many ways, we are getting away from it. The substance of what I want to say is this. <clears throat> that same principle, self-reliance, has application to the spiritual and to the emotional. We have been taught to store a year's supply of food, clothing, and, if possible, fuel at home. There has been no attempt to set up a storeroom in every chapel. We know that in the crunch, our members may not be able to get to the chapel for supplies. Can we not see that that same principle applies to inspiration and revelation, to counsel and to guidance? We need to have a source of it stored in every home, not just in the bishop's office. If we do not do that, we are quite as threatened spiritually as we should be were we to assume that the Church should supply every material need. Unless we use care, we are on the verge of doing to ourselves emotionally and therefore spiritually what we have been working so hard for generations to avoid materially. We seem to be developing an epidemic of counselitis. It drains spiritual strength from the Church, much like the common cold drains more strength from humanity than any other disease. That is very serious. There are many chronic cases. 
individuals who endlessly seek counsel but do not follow the counsel that is given. On one hand, we counsel bishops to avoid abuses in welfare help. On the other hand, some bishops dole out counsel and advice without considering that the member should solve the problem himself. Speaking figuratively, many a bishop keeps on the corner of his desk a large stack of emotional order forms. When someone comes with a problem, the bishop unfortunately doles them out without thinking what he is doing to his people. We have become very anxious over the amount of counseling that we seem to need in the Church. Our members are becoming dependent. We must not set up a network of counseling services without emphasizing at the same time the principle of emotional self-reliance and individual independence. If we lose our emotional and spiritual independence, our self-reliance, we can be weakened quite as much, perhaps even more, than when we become dependent materially. If we are not careful, we will lose the power of individual revelation. What the Lord said to Oliver Cowdery has great meaning for all of us. Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore you will feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing that is wrong. Spiritual independence and self-reliance is a sustaining power in the Church. If we rob our members of that, how can they get revelation for themselves? How will they know that there is a prophet of God? How can they get answers to prayers? Or how can they know for sure themselves? It is not an unfeeling bishop who requires those coming to him for counsel to exhaust every personal and every family resource before helping them. Bishops, be careful with your emotional order forms. Do not pass them out without having analyzed carefully the individual resources. Teach our members to follow proper channels in solving problems. It is not unusual for some to shop around to get advice from neighbors, friends from every direction, and then choose what they think is the best of it. That is a mistake. Some want to start with professional counselors, with psychologists, or go directly to the general authorities to begin with. The problems may need that kind of attention, but only after every personal and every family and every local resource has been exhausted. We mentioned that when a member has used all of his own resources, there should be no embarrassment in receiving welfare assistance. That principle holds true with emotional assistance as well. There may be a time when a deep-seated emotional problem needs more than can be given by the family or the bishop or the stake president. In order to help with the very difficult problems, the Church has established some counseling services 
Those are in areas where our membership is large, but they are only for those who come through proper channels. The first category includes those services that ordinarily require a license. The licensed services include adoptions, the care of unwed mothers, the foster care of children, the Indian placement program. The First Presidency has issued a letter giving instruction and caution with reference to these licensed services. Our purpose here will be to describe the clinical services. Clinical services are offered, again through proper channels only, in three successive steps. First, consultation, where a priesthood leader consults with an LDS social services representative about a serious problem. Only the priesthood leader meets with social services. The next step, evaluation, wherein a bishop and a member meet with social services to evaluate the problem. Ordinarily, this is one meeting only. Thereafter, the bishop continues to help the member. In difficult and persistent cases, there is therapy. The member, and when possible, the bishop, meets with a social service practitioner for counseling. After that, the bishop gives continuing help. Bishops and state presidents can exemplify self-reliance by resolving these problems locally. Ultimately, it is the member who must solve them. Bishops, you must not abdicate your responsibility to anyone, not to professionals, even to those employed by Church Social Services. They would be the first to tell you so. You have a power to soothe and to sanctify and to heal that others do not have. Sometimes what a member needs is forgiveness, and you, Bishop, have a key to that. If you find a case where professional help is justified, be careful. There are some spiritually destructive techniques used in the field of counseling. When you entrust a member to others, do not let them be subjected to those things. Solve these problems in the Lord's way. Some counselors want to delve deeper than is emotionally or spiritually healthy. They sometimes want to draw out and analyze and take apart and dissect. Now, while a certain amount of catharsis may be healthy, overmuch of it can be degenerating. It is seldom as easy to put something back together as it is to take it apart. By probing too deeply or endlessly talking about problems, we can foolishly cause the very things we are trying to prevent. You probably know about the parents who said, not children, while we are gone, don't take the stool into the pantry and climb up to the second shelf and move the cracker box and get that sack of beans and put one up your nose, will you? <laughs> there is a lesson in that. Now, Bishop, you may ask justifiably, how in the world can I ever accomplish my job as bishop and still counsel those who really need it? One state president said to me, Bishops don't have time to counsel. With the load we're putting on them, we're killing our bishops off.
While there's some truth in that, I sometimes think it's a case of suicide. <laughs> our, our study indicates that it is usually in program administration with all of the meetings, training sessions, and so on, the activities, that the bishop spends too much time. Bishops, leave that to your counselors, to priesthood leaders, and to auxiliary leaders. Trust them. Let go of it. And you will then be free to do the thing that will make the most difference, counseling those who really need it in the Lord's own way. Recently, two letters have gone to the field. The one was a two-thirds reduction in the number of personal priesthood interviews required at all levels. The other was a major shifting of administrative meetings from weekly and monthly to monthly and quarterly. And we have every hope that other relief will be filtering down through channels. In the meantime, Bishop, you are in charge. Get the administrative and training part of your work in such efficient operations. Delegate it so that you will have time to counsel your people. Bishops keep constantly in mind that fathers are responsible to preside over their families. Sometimes, with all good intentions, we require so much of both the children and of the father that he is not able to do so. If my boy needs counseling, Bishop, it should be my responsibility first and yours second. If my boy needs recreation, Bishop, I should provide it first and you second. If my boy needs correction, that should be my responsibility first and yours second. If I am failing as a father, help me first and my family second. Do not be too quick to take over from me the job of raising my children. Do not be too quick to counsel them and solve all the problems. Get me involved. It is my ministry. We live in a day when the adversary stresses on every hand the philosophy of instant gratification. We seem to demand instant everything, including instant solutions to our problems. We are indoctrinated that somehow we should always be instantly emotionally comfortable. When that is not so, some become anxious and all too frequently seek relief from overmuch counseling, from analysis, even from medication. It was meant to be that life would be a challenge. To suffer some anxiety, some depression, some disappointment, even some failure is normal. Teach our members that if they have a good miserable day once in a while or several in a row, to stand steady and face them. Things will straighten out. There is purpose in struggle in life. There's meaning in these words entitled, The Lesson. Yes, my fretting, frowning child, I could cross the room to you more easily, but I've already learned to walk, so I make you come to me. Let go now there. You see? Oh, remember this simple lesson, child. And when in later years you cry out with tight fists and tears, Oh, help me, God, please. Just listen, and you'll hear a silent voice. I would, child, I would, but it's you 
not I who needs to try Godhood. Bishop, those who come to you are children of God. Counsel them in the Lord's own way. Teach them to ponder in their minds, then to pray over their problems. Remember that soothing, calming effect of reading the scriptures. And now a closing thought from the scriptures. The prophet Alma faced a weightier problem than you, Bishop, will likely see in your ministry. Like you, he felt uncertain and went to Mosiah. Mosiah wisely turned the problem back to him, saying, Behold, I judge them not, therefore I deliver them into thy hands to be judged. And now the spirit of Alma was again troubled, and he went and inquired of the Lord what he should do concerning this matter, for he feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God. And it came to pass that after he had poured out his whole soul to God, the voice of the Lord came to him. That voice will speak to you, Bishop. That is your privilege. I bear witness of that, for I know that he lives. May God bless you, Bishop, the inspired judge in Israel, and those who come to you as you counsel them in the Lord's own way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.